Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry. I might the train Shut up. You're here. And good thing, because we've got lots of work. The talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. And in this episode, I sat down with Michael Patrick King. I've interviewed almost a thousand people in real life, in real life, and uh, as opposed to my fake life, and 250 on Employee of the Month, and there are two shows, two television shows, since I've had so many uh, writers and actors, obviously, and people in in entertainment. Um, There are two shows that people described having a really good time, regardless of what their actual job was on the show, and one of them was The Colbert Report, and the other one was Sex and the City, and so I was really excited to speak with Michael Patrick King, who, along with Sarah Jessica Parker, oversaw and created that visionary show. Uh, visionary both because it was quite beautiful and visionary because at the time there had been no show starring um, four women who just sort of had fun and were actually the main characters and complicated characters um, at that. So I was delighted to speak with him. He's actually doing a show with Bridget Everett. Bridget Everett has been on Employee of the Month several times, and you can check out our interviews as well, which are a lot of fun. And, of course, he did Two Broke Girls um, and The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow, which is also a great show. So enough yapping. Here's my interview with the one and only Michael Patrick King. I am so thrilled to finally be here with the one and only Michael Patrick King. I've been trying to get you on the show since its inception. That's correct. Back in the (laughs) 1930s. And now that we are 21, I think we're ready to to start it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I mean, and I just want to give uh, some background for listeners like Growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in a very Catholic home, you have, I think, three sisters. I have three sisters, Irish Catholic home, uh, three sisters, uh, only boy, which is, you know, a thing. When you have three sisters and you're the only boy, that means kind of you're an only child as well. And uh, there was no theatrical anything in our life. And I just had this desire to put on a show, so I used to... Um, put on shows in the backyard on the picnic table. I would, that would be the stage, and I would use the bench as like the step up, like that was the set. But I mean, yeah, I just had to put on a show, and I used my sisters. And that was it. Very Irish Catholic. Catholic. The Catholic part is also very theatrical. Yes, the pageantry. The pageantry. Of I was little, of course, and I was an altar boy, and I asked my mother when I was going to do my first Mass at yeah. six in the morning to come and take pictures. And she said, I don't think your heart's in the right place. <laughs> it's like it's like almost, you know, the coal that becomes a diamond. Like the, it, you have to throw it off. And it certainly gives you a point of view that you don't want to be. I wasn't able to truly throw that off until my, I'd say, like, late 30s. Um, and well, I was going to ask for you, like, even though performing started a decade earlier for Oh, me, yeah, but I think it's interesting. Right around then, too, for me, because that's Sex in the City. And... The idea that I was, Six and City was a liberation on a lot of avenues for me. But number one, it was writing about, it was exposing, putting a light on shame. I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of about the series is that up until we did that, sex was always sort of 
dipped in black ink, the words. And then after us, we added comedy and light to it, literally put it in the light and comedy and talked about it. And from then on, every time you see the word sex, pretty much now it's pink because that was kind of our logo and it kind of changed from black to pink. And, and for me to exercise or to exercise all those demons and to do it with comedy and also to completely be excited because I knew that I shouldn't be doing it. You know, like to do the first time I wrote the scene in the cab where about up the butt. Yes. Mr. Up the butt. I don't want to be Mrs. (laughs) Up the butt, Charlotte. The idea of the forbidden idea that a, I'm saying this secondly, no one has ever written this. And thirdly, then the actresses have never said this. And that explosion of red faced laughter at the table read, I think a lot of my, uh, excitement about writing about sex came from my rebellion of throwing off the norms of faux heterosexuality, faux shame about being Catholic, faux Irish, don't even admit you're having sex of any kind. Yes. So to me, it was the same time. I mean, it's a long journey out. It doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight. Sometimes it's a long journey to the point where you're sort of sexual and to be out single and doing sex in the city when we all did it. It was interesting because every single person in the writing room was single except for Julie Rottenberg, who was in a non-committed, committed relationship. So we were all out rebellion and everything we did on that show pretty much came from our single lives. I was happy doing sex in the city. We were all happy. The writers were happy. The actors were happy. Before I met Sarah Jessica, Darren Starr, did the pilot. HBO called me up and said, look at this. See if you want to do this. Because I had done a show for HBO and I was brought in to also add... What was that show? Sex and the City. Oh, Oh, what show did I do? Yeah. It was a show that never got made. Okay. It was a pilot. It was the first time I'd done something that wasn't a multi-camera comedy that Carolyn Strauss said to me, see what you can do with this. And I did a rewrite and they still didn't do it, which was not uncommon for HBO. So anyway... Still is not uncommon. So then I, I... Darren and I agreed to do it, and I sat down on the couch to talk to Pat Field the first day I met Sarah Jessica. And and Pat Field is an amazing designer. She's an amazing force in New York and and the visionary for Sex and the City clothing and style and sometimes attitude. And And Darren Starr did 90210, is that correct? He did 90210 on Melrose Place. He grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which was a suburb. Darren was coming from the one hour... Uh, sort of nighttime soaps and I was the half hour comedy guy and together we were going to make a half hour little comedy movie every week which is what we did but the minute I sat down on this couch next to Sarah Jessica I just I felt like I was meeting somebody a new a new playmate I mean I hate to say it, it sounds so corny but we were instantly laughing instantly so much so that we almost like I felt like I was in school and I met like my new best friend and from then on it's been nothing but uh Uh, It was a love fest, and she was an incredible muse. You know, to write something with specific actresses in mind is is a treat. It's also uh, a a challenge. And also that you guys knew your roles, I think, is also the very interesting part that she wanted you to be the person writing. Yeah. It seems like from the outside, that's what I got. It was a great, amazing build because it started intimate, two people, then three 
and the writing two of people children. meaning Me, Darren and I first okay. season then Darren and I and Jenny Bix and then Darren left and I started bringing in Julie and Elise and Liz and Cindy and so I'm just, all of these are alumni of the show that you you can check out our episode Cindy Chupak Liz Tuchilla Julie Rottenberg and um, her writing partner Elisa Zaritsky Elisa Zaritsky um, yeah so it became this great sort of evolution all of it and by the time we ended it was people were throwing parties for us in Brazil was this the first show running job you had? No. Well? Okay. No, okay. I had had other show running jobs. I started. Um, I mean, I spent so much time in New York. I moved. Yeah. To New- so let's go. Let's go back to when you moved. When you moved to New York. I moved to New York from tw- at twenty, and I didn't know anybody at all in the city. But I did have one connection, which really skyrocketed my career. I knew somebody who worked at Greyhound. So I got, yeah, I got a job unloading buses at the Port Authority from five at night till three in the morning. That was, I got off the bus from Pennsylvania, put my stuff in a locker and went to work for the buses. And that was how unconnected I was. And I remember, think I would cry. This is Port Authority in the eighties? Yeah, this was... This was bad Port Authority. Well, I just want to, like, for people who don't live in New York or who are unethically young. This um, is pre-Disney. Pre-Disney. And, all, like, my dad worked for Mayor Lindsay and Bess Meyerson and then worked for Jimmy Carter. And he would talk about how New York politics were so rough and tumble. Everything was rough and, and tumble. was so rough and tumble. Rough and tumble. over a dead body. A oh, know, friend would, you know, have walk over dead body. I would be in the lunchroom <laughs> eating my lunch at three... Th- 2.30 in the morning and look out the window and seeing see hookers giving blowjobs. I mean, oh, what's happening out the window today? This is the opposite of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was like rough. And people used to say to me, I would go home with my, my money yes. in my pocket at like 3.30 in the morning at the end of the paycheck, at the end of the week. And people were like, aren't you dang? I said, if anybody tries to take this money from me, I'll kill them after what yes. I have to go through to get it. You become so So, tough. I mean, it, I started with that glamorous start, and then I waited on tables for 100 years. And I was in New York City from 20, and I still didn't have my rent regularly at 37. I think this is going to make a lot of people feel so much better. And I have to say that, like, when you came at 37, you had all this life experience. Yes. And there are all these young kids now or people who sort of just went straight into the business. And I always wonder, like, what is your interior life like? Like, do you have one? What's your interior life like? What's your success failure armor? It's just not as fun. I mean, it was torture. But I didn't see it that way. And when I say, I mean, driven. Like, I was a waiter for 100 years. And I worked graveyard shifts, which means, you know, 11 at night till 6 in the morning. And then I would sleep for three hours and get up. And I would, I got to put stamps on envelopes. I got to get headshots. I got to get out there. Because you were acting and doing the comedy duo? I was acting, just starting to do acting. And then all of a sudden, I, uh, that wasn't working. How did you know internally, this is not me? Uh, it, It was a long... Uh, process. I was good. But I remember I did a production of The Three Sisters at uh, the offshoot of Circle Rep. Very good production. And I was Solyoni in it. And I, mean, I thought it was pretty good. That's the one who's obsessed with washing his hands. I was smoldering and, and pretty good. And afterwards, everyone was around who had seen the show. And I remember them looking at me like, and the sound that they would make on their face would be this. Huh. Uh, there was a question. Right. And at the right. same time, I was doing improv. 
I fell into an improv group. And the first time I did improv, I felt like I when was electrocuted. You, you fell into... I auditioned for this group okay. called The First Amendment. And the first time I got on stage in this improv group, I felt like I was shot with electricity. I thought, oh my God, this is what I do. And I remember thinking the faces after the, the, the three sisters. Yeah. Huh. And then I played back all the faces of the people who had seen me do comedy. And they were like, yeah. How did you even find out about improv? Because... Backstage. Magazines, and papers, improv yes. troupe, anything. I did everything. Audition everywhere. Do everything. Yeah. But the idea was it was – it was, and this is my, my sort of philosophy. Yeah. Everybody who watched me after comedy, their, their look to me was like a green light. Yeah. And everybody after drama was a yellow or a red light. Did you feel it internally too? Yeah. I felt something wasn't working. And when I was doing comedy, I felt completely free. So I realized, well, I'm going to go. And it wasn't just me. People were literally telling me, don't come here. You're getting kicked out of this theater company as an actor. And they were not telling me that in comedy. No. It just didn't work. And then all of a sudden I was like, I met somebody in the comedy team. Who troupe, was that? Lisa Mende. And she Is was that funny. Is that Dama wife? Yes. Dama was in the group too. Oh, wow. Dominic okay. and Lisa. He's a great uh, He's a really good stand-up. And Lisa and I really worked well together in the improv troupe. And then we decided, it was the comedy boom in the 80s. And we decided, oh, well, we'll do this. And we became a comedy team. We played Vegas, King and Mende. Only thing bigger than our names on the marquee was Gourmet Buffet 995. <laughs> and uh, then after that, but it was how I started making money. And I, you got to be on Merv Griffin. I did get to be on the very end of Merv Griffin. It was like uh, the like last, like as the dinosaur, as the as the asteroid hits that Merv Griffin dinosaur. <laughs> we were there. We did it twice. I know that you got asked back is also in three days. That either means we were fantastic or they ran out of guests. No, for the I end. think that means you were fantastic. It was it. We did improv and we were funny. And then she decided she was going to live in LA and with Dominic. And I went back to New York and I said to the woman who ran the improv, Silver Friedman, who was kind of our mentor, uh, I want to do stand up. Did she, she said, did she pay for you guys? Did she? Oh, we all, we got paid at the club. Okay. I mean, you got like 15 bucks a set. Yeah. And so she's, I said, I want to do stand up. She said, do you have five minutes? And I was like, no problem. I'm going to have five minutes. And then I had five minutes, but it, I had 25 minutes, but it takes a year to be able to stand on stage and be present yes. and do the material. Yes. To it's go back to the five-year-old self who to, doesn't notice that everyone's looking yes, at Yes. To yeah. be completely exposed. Yeah. Anyway, the point is I started getting comedy and then I started working in comedy television. How did you get that as your first job? They had a show that wasn't working. It was very low-key. What was the show that wasn't working? It was called The Sweet Life with Rachel Sweet. And it was like, these were like video, these were like VJs with yeah. comedy clips. That's what the show. And they had a show that wasn't working. And somebody I knew knew I was seeing some of the sketches I wrote and said, what do you think? And I said, oh, I would do it this way and this way and this way and this way. And they called me up and I said, thought it was going to be a meeting. He said, no, tell me now. And I said, I would do it this way, this way, and this way, and this way. And they said, you're hired. Wow. So then I went in to turn the show around, and that was the beginning of my first show business experience. And I, and I stayed in the Comedy Channel, and it was really fun. I did it for like four months, and then one day I woke up, and my uh, complete eyelid was purple. Okay, that's too much pressure. Mm -hmm. And I went in, and I and my friends were doing Summerstock, and I was going to write a play, and I said, I, I'm going to do Summerstock and write this play because of the pressure. And then my first real 
classic television job was on Murphy Brown. Okay, so... In their fifth year and the first episode I wrote, Miles comes in with an eye patch because his eyelid hemorrhaged in his rest state. So I just used it. Yeah. But I went to Hollywood first for a very small show called my talk show, which was a strip show based out of Second City. And because I knew the star... Who was the star? Cynthia Stevenson. And she said, they can't write for me. Can you write for me? And I said, absolutely not going to Hollywood. Meanwhile, some part of me is banging out a spec script for a show I had never seen. I loved it. I said, what's the show about? She said, it's a woman who has a talk show. It was like Fernwood Tonight, pre-Fernwood Tonight. I love this. A woman I love has a, a woman has a... It wasn't Hutzpah. It was Hire Something. I said I didn't want to do it. I didn't think I could do it. And some part of me was... Typing. Some part of me, the best part of me, was typing and the idea, again, it's the idea, the idea overtook like, oh, what would that be if a woman had a talk show in her living room? And so I wrote a script and sent it out there, never having seen the show. And they hired me and I had a manager, this old television writer manager he man he managed all the original SNL writers named Barry Secunda and he had this deep voice and he said to me, Mike, they're, they're offering you the job because of that actress. If you go out there, you're going to be the poodle. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but I guess I'm going to be the poodle. And I went out, I landed, and as I walked into the show, the star hugged me and said, I just quit. So there I Whatever was. Your other I, wrote her, <laughs> I wrote her goodbye show. I was thrown into this writing room with these people, who, and the show wasn't working. It was clearly not working. And it was clearly going to be canceled soon. There was a writer. This, this is, I don't know. Am I allowed to tell a kind yes. of, okay. Yes. I was sitting around a table with these four writers in these plastic sort of those knockoff Ames chairs. And one of the writers was a Hollywood writer. And if I was like 38, he was 48, yeah. maybe even 55. And he was like an old hippie. He had one of those sort of a gay, old gay hippie. He drove a white uh, rolls and he had a feathered frosted hair and he had on like a, like a surfer jacket that you buy at Venice Beach and shorts, shorts, big Hirachi shorts. And at one point they're pitching stuff and I look down on his chair and next to him on his chair is what looks like a thing of silly putty, a pink thing of silly putty. And then I realize this, oh, it's his testicle. It came out of his shorts, and I actually had this thought, that's too relaxed for television. I mean, I'm, I'm the opposite of that. Totally. His totally. testicle is laying on the chair. That's either how relaxed, how old, or how stoned he was at the time. That's right. And then after that, that show got canceled, and I got offered to write spec sketches for In Living Color. Oh, wow. Are you serious? Because my agent, who is a baby agent, Ari Emanuel, who grew up to be the king of one of I'm, the kings of Hollywood. He's amazing. Hug it out, bitch. He was my first agent and he was as new as me. And he said, just write some sketches. I have a connection at In Living Color. So I thought, okay, what would I write for an African-American comedy show? And I wrote three outrageous sketches. One of them was Connecticut Family Safari and it was a black family driving through Connecticut and a white family coming out and throwing pesto like, like the, they were animals and hitting the thing with trying to give their business card into the thing. And the last line was, okay, honey, that kid, little kid wants to go again. Goes, That's enough white people for today. And they offered me the job. But then I got the next day, I got another offer 
from Alan Zweibel on a show called Good Sports, which was just happening with Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. They showed me the pilot. I told them what I thought didn't work, and they hired me. Did you go with the, that one out of instinct of I'm better for I this? Went, I went with that? that one because it was half-hour narrative. Okay. It's a, it was a traditional story, more like a play. I did that two years, development deal, pilots didn't go, pilots didn't go, self-crisis. I don't know, did I blow up my career? Two firings. Well, let's talk about that because it, it's so common in our world that, you know, the first person's response is, what did you do right? <laughs> um, but can you talk about those two firings? I, I, I don't know if you can care too much about It was your entire identity? Think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At that point, it was like, this is what I've been working for my whole life. So if this, if, if I'm, if this isn't working, that means something. The amount of pressure that a showrunner is under all the time from, because let's just start from a new show. When we did the, we did the pilot of Two Broke Girls, and I was very experienced by then, and I decided to go back to actually in front of an audience because I wanted to have the experience of a, a, a flat live burlesque, which I thought that's what we were doing, that when yeah. they stopped talking, there's supposed to be a big sound in the audience. Hard laughs. I was really sick of... Um, single camera innuendo comedy where people are either not doing jokes, but they're not talking like real people. Yes. I was like, I want to do like a joke yeah, and then, or a drama. (laughs) I don't want to do like this middle road stuff, but the pressure of wanting something to work and not knowing if it works yet. Yes. Every week. Does this work? And to be on this major network where everything is very hetero male focused, Mm -hmm. generally they're big shows that are successful there. Um, Well, here's the interesting thing about that. Yeah. I wrote that show with Whitney Cummings on spec. And I said, I don't need to know what a network thinks. I'm going to be harder on the script than they are. So we wrote it. And I said, Whitney, it's an experiment. I mean, she was like just starting out. And I was like, Let's just write this. Yeah. To, she, she's a sharp, hard-hitting comic voice. Yes. I know stuff too. Let's see what we would... Let's the most edgy thing that we would want to watch. And then bidding more because no one got involved. If Two Broke Girls had been gone through the process, what you're talking about is hetero, male, normative, whatever. Yeah. It wouldn't have had the word, you think there's a sound that gets you service. I think is the sound that dries up my vagina in the yes. first 20 seconds, which is why the show be- became yeah, sorry. picked up. Yeah. And that's only ballsy, and that would never have made it yeah. through the finish line. But we handed them the finished script, so they also have the experience of, we didn't know any of these things were coming, so we're enjoying this as an audience, and they didn't have to like it. The television landscape changed so dramatically from, from when you were first in the network atmosphere. God. I, I just can't imagine dealing with all of those different things. I really am going to say to you now something that I've never said before. The pressure is equal to the pressure I put on myself when I had nothing. Okay. You're, if you're good, you're already leading the way with pressure. Like, and what, when, when someone says this sucks, that's just adding to your pressure. Done. That's not creating your pressure. The, the, the journey is really t- the way out of that. Yes. Yeah. Not necessarily taking the thing that I hate the most yeah. is that a critical reaction can define the identity 
of something before other people have had a chance to experience their own thought. Completely. I'm actually at the point where I am, because enough stuff has gone and enough stuff has not gone. Yes. That I can actually see the stuff that doesn't go just doesn't go. It isn't flawed. Sometimes. Tell me that what that means. Like, can you give a specific um, example? The, the, pr- the, pr- the conventional thought is, oh, we're not doing your show. It stinks. Yeah. Rather than we're not doing your show. It's fill in the blank. Too complicated. Not what we're looking for. We're looking for raincoats. That's a couture gown. When you start to really understand that, uh, and it's a very advanced thought after hundreds and hundreds of scripts and much affirmations in the show business aspect. Personally, your own personal affirmations, but you have to have been feted enough so that you're not hungry in order to get to the place where you can say, um, that's the best thing I've written so far. It's not going. Okay. When something does go to pilot, at this point, I'm, I'm understanding that the reach could be too complicated. The reach could be new. That happened on the comeback. People didn't know what the hell we were doing. And 10 years later, we got to redo it because they caught up to us. I'm aware of that. I am also aware of the fact that I could have been wrong. The hard pressure comes from the fact that people followed you down this road and put their hopes and dreams on it. Yes. And that's where I am. That's where the pressure is now. Like, what about all these people that really are good at this? And what if it doesn't go, did I lead them off a cliff? The comeback, I felt like Lisa Kudrow, first of all, it was so wonderful to have her on her own. But what was most exciting about it for me as a viewer, I don't live in Hollywood. I live in New York and it felt like a play in some ways and she just had this tenderness. And so when I say that it felt like a play, I guess what I mean is that feeling when you're in a sort of sparse theater and it did feel vulnerable and naked. It's interesting you said that because New York embraced that show and Hollywood was terrified of it. New York thought it was funny. (laughs) Hollywood thought it was tragic. It's really interesting. New York, who has distance on it, saw the person. Yes. Hollywood saw themselves. That's one of the many theories. But I do remember a rabid fan base in New York, like the early Christians, like, we've seen it. We agree with you. But out here was like, one of the odd things that we came upon was now HBO was not casual. And here comes the guy from Sex and the City and Phoebe from Friends. And there was an expectation that they were going to get Phoebe on Sex and the City. Not from HBO because they knew what they were getting. But like these two people will make something that looks like these two people that we already know. So interesting because David Simon was also on the show and, you know, I thought, okay, well, after The Wire, were you allowed to do everything? And he goes, no, it's project by project. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're an artist, you're not going to repeat. You don't think I could have done Sex and the uh, Suburbs? You don't think I could have done, like... Yawn. Uh, yeah, I mean, you don't think I could have done that? But it was not interesting to us. The new idea was the idea that television was about to eat itself with reality TV and diminishing ratings and uh, and 
the idea that we, Lisa was fascinated with the idea of an ego. Yes. Of an actress who keeps grinding. I mean, we created the poster. It was Lisa standing in a meat grinder with her gown coming out like it's a sausage. And the idea that somebody's willing to step in a meat grinder to grind themselves up as long. And she's smiling. Like, I'm in the spotlight. Now, this is yeah. before Real Housewives. This is be- the only reality TV was people eating bugs and throwing up on Survivor and the Osbournes. Well, and there was... No one had seen a woman do this. Absolutely not. And also the joy there. So, like, you can show the character in a pathetic way where they're so miserable and you can walk away and say, well, why would anyone do that to themselves? Well... And because she had all this glee... And, and was excited, genuinely yes. excited yeah. about these things. You have this really nuanced character. Yes. And I remember I had um, Taylor Schilling and Piper Kerman on my show. And then you have this, you know, when she goes to the award show. And yes. she has to choose uh-huh. my husband's in the uh, hospital. Yeah, this yeah, is my yeah. achievement. And the surreal nature now of um, are we in a movie? Are we in a TV show? Is this real? What's happening? <laughs> people are so really used to now. Alive. It's exciting because we did it 10 years later. But people, by the time, they're so used to dark and comedy together now. Whereas before a woman was supposed to either be like Sex in the City. People used to say to me, oh, it's in the clothes and the shoes. And I go, yeah, you think people are opening their closet at 9 o'clock on Sunday and just looking at the clothes and the shoes? No. But it, that was like the feathers. Yes, and totally. And Lisa had no feathers. She was just naked. And, and it, was, it was such a stunning performance that it was not well received. And now when I look at the world, I see um, not her performance wasn't well received. People always thought she was brilliant. The show was ahead of its time or something. Now I think... Everybody with their Facebook is Valerie Cherish. Absolutely. They're just trying to create their reality. Yes. They're interested on their, you know, Valerie's whole thing was, how am I coming across? How do I look? How do I look? Am I being seen? Am I being seen? And you didn't know I'm being heard. That's what Facebook is. And I was just at a television conference in Texas to talk about the comeback, actually. And they were handing me waters with shows from networks from like, Bula. Networks I've never seen yeah. and ice cream cones from shows I've never seen. Yes. And I was like, television is now as desperate as Valerie was. Oh, I mean. Everybody I- needs to be seen and there's so many, there's only so many eyes. Yes. And I think that also, you know, it's both, uh, we're, we've driven ourselves into this and we're being driven into this. And I think it is this very odd catch 22 where like she did need to do all of these things in order to get seen in Hollywood. Yes. So, yes. And then you imagine that people are watching these new shows while they're on their own social media, commenting to show people that they don't like it. You're not even watching it because you're a minute in. <laughs> yes. And you've already formed your tweet. Yes. And why don't you... You already them? have your characters. Yes. You, don't, you can't be surprised now because you're already... You, don't, you, you haven't suspended anything. So tell me about Amazon and the project you're doing for Amazon. Well, I'm working with Bridget Everett. Who has been... Uh, I think she's been the most... How do you say the guest we've had the most? Really? Yeah. I love Bridget. I did her... Off, off Broadway show, at least it's pink. I went to Aspen and there is Ars Nova. Which is a very small theater um, on the west side and is also where Freestyle Love Supreme with Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's also been on the show in our Tom. house band, um, performed all the time. And um, Katie Lazarus also performed there as part of her, my old show, Fresh Meat. But so that is where you, you heard of her. I know. I, he said, go look at her. Oh, wow. She needs help, he said. She needs help sort of framing herself. Amazing. So I went, she was in front of 500 people, 
and I brought my boyfriend Craig and he has the greatest taste in comedy and we were laughing and half the audience left. She did one song, put it up my can hole and half the audience left. And I thought, and the other half stayed and thought they were seeing a superstar. And I thought, okay, that's a star. Half the people left because they've never seen it, don't know what it is, can't process it. That happened at my show with her too. Yeah. That is so fascinating. That's the original. Never seen it. Can't process it. Leave versus open devotee new experience. That is so fascinating. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, she's something. So Bridget came, I kept bringing her out to LA for these little writer journeys. And then we created this show and then we did it and it was really fun. And then it was supposed to move. And then we got boned, not by Ars Nova, by a bigger producer and didn't move. And I had to come back to Hollywood and Bridget took that defeat and turned it into gold. She just dug in. She's still a waitress now. She's at Ruby Foods for like seven more years. And she just dug in and she became this phenomenon that is in New York now at Joe's Pub. And and we watched each other and I could never say anything. And I would see all these people coming to her and saying, we're going to make you the new Roseanne. We're going to make you this. And I just couldn't say anything because I wasn't available to work with her again. We loved working together. And I always thought, oh, I, I just want to make sure the right person gets her, yes. not the wrong person. Yes. And I, maybe I'm it, but at least I, I know what she is, so I can protect it a little bit. So uh, then it was time. And I was available, and I said, Bridget, I think well, it's time. And uh, so Carolyn Strauss, who works at HBO, who was the person who gave me the job at Sex in the City, said to me, I hear you're circling Bridget. I'm circling too. Do you want to do something together? Anywhere we could do it together? And I said, yeah. And so we got together and we started talking. And then I said, we need another person. And then I was searching, like, who would it be? And it was Bobcat Goldthwait, who is a brilliant, I'm in love. brilliant director. And, of course, a legendary comic from the 80s. And I asked him if he would do it. And he heard the idea and loved it. And so Bridget and Bobcat and I wrote this show for her, which sort of is um, a ring to put the diamond that she's in, but all the diamond of her that we know, not just the singer in your face, ballsy one, but the vulnerable one, the good hearted one. And there's a very unique world of the show because we wanted to capitalize on her her character's booziness and inappropriate sex and sloppiness that's so good on stage. But that's, I needed to find something to win her, the audience. So her day job is that she is a counselor at a privately funded group home for young adults with Down syndrome in New York City. Okay, I can't wait to see the show. Yeah. Um, And a completely unrelated story, but do you know about Arthur Miller's son? No. So... Arthur Miller's son has Down syndrome Mm -hmm. and um, did not make it into the inheritance or anything like that. Oh, my. And was a highly functioning kid. Oh, that's rough. And another family found him and, like, helped fund him so that he could go off and have a job and have a life and all that. That's amazing. So Bridget's starring in a show with seven amazing actors with Down syndrome from 20 to 30 and... The character has a 71-year-old roommate that she got off Craigslist, which is a woman from the Midwest 
who comes back to New York to resume her single gal life after her husband died. And get ready, it's being played by Lonnie Anderson. I love this. WKRP is back. She's back. She's moved. And her and Bridget as roommates. And it's just this really interesting and uh, complicated uh, show about, it's called Love You More. And it's about a main character who doesn't quite think they're worthy of love. And we surround her with love, which is what uh, the predominant trait in people with Down syndrome is. They are predisposed to love. And it was really amazing and really complicated and Bridget's amazing in it. And I hope it goes. Michael Patrick King, I cannot thank you enough. I can't thank you enough. This was really special. Thank you so much for being the employee of the month. They do deserve to. How exciting to be the employee of the month. Yeah. You're going to actually get your award in the mail, though, technically. All right. Okay, good. All right. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Rob Schulte. Thank you to ACAST and Nora Lind. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a great review on iTunes. And I do want to recommend, again, you can listen to my episode with Bridget Everett, um, who is doing a show that's going to be a forthcoming show with Michael Patrick King as well. And whatever you're doing, I hope you're having some fun. You have to have some, just a little bit, 47%, okay? If you can just shoot for a 47% of your day being fun, that's a big percentage. All right, let's shoot for 17, okay? We'll leave it at 17%. That way, if it's more, you're going to be really happy. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. I'll talk to you next week.